Let's open our Bibles now to Romans chapter 12 as we continue through this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us. Romans chapter 12, we're going to be working all the way through one verse this morning, taking a big, a big chunk. Sometimes in Romans, the second half of Romans isn't quite like this as often, but sometimes in Romans, one verse is more than enough uh, to try and get through in 40, 45 minutes. So I could just preach for a couple hours, and we wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> Hear now, though, the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 12. We are in verse number 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, for this pure and good and perfect gift that you have given us that Lord, through your word, by your Spirit's work through that living word, we come to know our God. We, we hear the voice of our God. We see you and we know you. Lord, we are even transformed by that same Spirit through that same word into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish your good work among us, that that the dead would be called to life, that blinded eyes would be given sight, that deaf ears would hear, that dead hearts would be caused to live. Lord, that we would be made to see your glory and to rejoice in you, our God, to rest in you, that we would be motivated to righteousness and faithfulness and obedience. Pray, God, that you'd have your way, and I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the Words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've made this transition into Romans chapter 12, out of the, the first 11 chapters, which are, are, are deep and theological and doctrinal, and now we come into Romans chapter 12, and Paul's been explaining to us, even as we're just a few verses in, what it looks like to live the Christian life. We've learned that in light of all that God has done and is doing in his plan of salvation for undeserving sinners through Christ, we've learned there's only one reasonable response to that as we've come to Romans chapter 12. There's only one reasonable response to the outpouring of God's mercy to us in the gospel. And that one reasonable response is that our entire lives would be given to God in sacrificial service. If we're going to do that, Paul has, has told us we, we must not be squeezed into the, the shape of the world. We must not be squeezed by those external pressures that, are, that are, are, are impressed upon us, imposed upon us every day in this world to, to try and squeeze us into the mold of this world so that we'll think like them, so that we'll act like them, so that we'll look like them. I, I, w I was struck uh, while we were on vacation in Orlando, but then as we came home from Orlando, and you know, you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to go to the theme parks in Orlando because of the way they promote immorality, uh, stay here locally and just go get your groceries at Meijer where they promote immorality. As you walk through the aisles and you see their, their June setup that they've got for LGBT Pride Month in June, and the children's clothing that they have promoting homosexuality uh, at our local mire. 
And, and I'm always struck by that. Why do we need kids' clothes promoting certain sexual behaviors? It's because of this, because the world wants to press you into its mold, and it wants to start as young as possible. And Paul says, if we're to live like Christians, we must not allow that to happen to us. We must not let the world press us into its mold. And instead, we need this radical renewal in our thinking that transforms us more and more into the likeness of Christ. It produces, Paul has told us, humility in us. This, this gospel transformation causes us, Paul said, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to examine ourselves with sober judgment. And then as we read last week, the Christian life is not lived alone. We have been placed by God into an interconnected body, the local church. We have been made members of the body of Christ through the local church, members of one another as well, brought into interdependent relationships with each other, each one of us gifted by God specifically to care for one another and to be cared for by one another. God has, has placed us into this body, into this family, and this interdependence is, is critical to how God has organized his church. We are, if we're to live the Christian life, we can't see ourselves as being on an individual rogue mission to somehow glorify God in our life. We've been joined to something much, much bigger. We're connected to one another by God's design. We're dependent upon one another. We need one another. And now, now Paul has shown us this already, and as we move into this next section, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, Paul is going to, in, in really rapid-fire delivery, give us one statement after another of what it looks like to live this Christian life. What are the marks of the true Christian? And verses 9 through 13 in particular relate to the body life of the church, what it looks like to be a member of the body of Christ. How do we live as members of Christ's church? What, what should people see when they look at our lives? And so to start it all off here in verse 9, Paul gives us three short statements we're going to be dealing with this morning that, that really set the stage for us of what this life of godliness looks like. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. It's not surprising that, that Paul, in talking to us about it, what it looks like, the marks of the, of the true Christian, what it looks like to live the, the Christian life that Paul would start with love. That's not shocking if we're familiar with the other things Paul has written. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard it. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And he goes on in that passage to, to describe the actions of love, but then he ends with this statement in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I can remember hearing that verse over and over as a kid and thinking, why love? Why, why is love better than faith? Why is love better than hope? Why, why, why is love the greatest and not faith the greatest, not hope the greatest? Well, the answer is because it's the only one that's going to last forever. Love is, is the one that, that, that will persist forever. Hebrews 11 verse 1 tells us this, 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But as essential as faith is to us right now, one day we will see. One day we will know. We won't be hoping any longer. We will be. What will come into the full experience of what we've hoped for and believed in, but love is going to last forever. Love, love is going to persist forever. And so as, as Paul lists out the marks for us going forward of the true Christian, it makes sense that this greatest, this highest, this eternal quality would be listed first. Paul says to us, Here, here's how you should love. Let love be genuine. Let, let love be anuprokritos, to use Paul's word. And you all know what that means. No, literally, it means unhypocritical. It's not a real English word. Let your love be unhypocritical. Unfaked. The, the, the word hypocrisy comes from hypocritos, this, this, the root of that Greek word. Hypocrisy, hypocrite. It's a reference to, to Greek actors. Many of you have probably, probably heard that before as you've been around the church. Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse and. In his exposition of Romans says the theater of Paul's generation, it wasn't like our theater. There weren't elaborate sets or elaborate costumes or, or lighting. Instead, what the actors did is either wore a mask or carried a mask the entire time they were on stage. That way the audience could look at them and they could figure out what role they were playing in, in this action they were seeing unfold before them. Were they a tragic character? Were they a comedic character? Were they melodramatic? And so anytime the actor appears on stage, um, central to, to their presence and their acting is this mask that they wear or that they carry. And Paul says, don't have anything to do with that in your love. Our, our love isn't supposed to be wearing a mask. Our love isn't supposed to merely be acting. It must be genuine. It must be real. It must be true. D.L. Moody used to, to reference the person who he said is always talking cream but living skim milk. They're always talking heavy cream, but when it gets down to it, they're living skim milk. Paul says, don't be that person. Don't live your life that way. Don't, don't love in that way. Our must, love must be genuine without hypocrisy. He tells Christians in the body of Christ, take down your mask and, and love for real. This is the first call. It's got to be genuine love. That's what Christians has. That marks the Christian. And, and this word that Paul uses for love here is, is agape. And you've, you've probably heard there's even a commercial out for some, something or other that talks about the four different words for love in the Greek language primarily. And there were these four, four words for, Greek, for, for love in the Greek language, but the secular writers of Paul's day thought this particular word, agape, was the most boring of all of them. They were completely unimpressed with this word. They tried to, to use other words instead. They, they'd talk about eros, which, which is, is sexual love and attraction. Or philia, brotherly love. They'd talk about storge, the, the love that a parent has for a child. But agape was boring because agape, they thought, was unfeeling. Agape, they thought, was, was cold. Because unlike those, those high emotions of, of 
sexual attraction and, and, and marital love, unlike the, the high feelings of parental love or even brotherly love. Agape is the word for intellectual commitment. It's a decision of the will to give your life for the object of that love, of that agape. It's not a matter of feelings. It's a matter of choosing. It's a matter of commitment. Now, of course, feelings follow after that commitment. But at, but at its root, it's not that. So Agape is this love that has, has made its mind up. There's no hypocrisy in it. There's no acting in it. It's not dependent upon feelings. It's, it's for keeps. It's for real. It's a, it's, a, it's a choice that I've made. I'll often tell couples in premarital counseling and even sometimes in the wedding ceremony itself, you are going to wake up one morning and look over at this person laying next to you, this old man, this old woman with bad breath, and you're not going to feel these overwhelming feelings of love that you feel right now as a 23-year-old. You're not going to feel overwhelming feelings of attraction. And what you're going to have on that day is this commitment and this decision that you're making to love one another for the whole rest of your life. That, that, that's the reality of it, and that's, that's this agape love. And Paul tells the church, love each other like that. Not, not based on how you feel, not based on what you want to project. Loving one another like that in the church is the first and clearest mark of genuine saving faith, of the, of the Christian. Jesus told his disciples this, John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what, what Jesus says. Everyone's going to know. The mark of you being a genuine disciple is going to be that you've made your minds up to love one another. That you look out for one another's interests. That you serve one another. And that's, that's the way it want, went. Minucius Felix was, was a Roman attorney living at the time that this letter was written in the first century. And he wrote this of the Christians. They didn't even know anything about each other. But as soon as they discover that they each belong to Christ, they instantly love and are committed to one another. He, he looked at that and said, well, how, here's how we know who the Christians are. It's this group of people that loves one another because they've got Christ in common. Julian the Apostate, you can guess from his name how he felt about Christianity. Roman emperor of the fourth century hated Christians. And, and he said these words in mockery of Christians, their teacher has implanted the belief in them that they're all related. They're all family. So, so this clearest and first mark of the true Christian is genuine love for the saints. No hypocrisy in it, no acting in it, no faking, a decision, a choice to sacrificially love one another and as we see Paul say this to us, we ought to examine our lives. As we, as we see each of these marks as, uh, this morning and as we go forward, we ought to be then quickly turning this mirror on ourselves and saying, so what do I look like in comparison with this? So what about you? Do you love God's people? And before you answer too quick, 
and we think of romanticized versions of our favorite preachers or public Christians or, or, or elsewhere, just look around this room. Do you love these people? Do, do your words and actions match your heart? If you look around and go, yes, I do love these people. Well, do you act like you do? Do you think like you do? Does your attitude match the call that God has commanded you to, to love them sacrificially? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, let your love of the brethren in the faith be as though you were brethren in the blood. Can you say quite honestly, without hypocrisy, that you have deeper affection for and deeper understanding of your fellow Christians than you have for your natural relatives who are not Christians? Can you say that? As you look around this room, do you say, I'm more committed to and I love more these people than my non-Christian family members? Because the reality is God has, in Christ, made you closer with one another than you are with that natural bond with your siblings. This one lasts forever. This brotherhood, this union lasts forever. That's the first call. Love one another, genuinely. And then with the, with the next two marks Paul gives us, it's really a two-sided coin of, of godly living. One side is negative and one side is positive. First the negative, he says, abhor what is evil. It's the only time in the New Testament this word gets used, abhor. It's used one time right here in verse 9. It is a strong word for hatred, for loathing. L literally, you hate something so much you regard it with horror. You don't even want to look at it straight on. That's how much you hate it. It's to turn away from something in disgust. To turn away from something in utter contempt. Paul says, feel that way about evil. Abhor it. Hold it in contempt. Be disgusted by it. Shudder at the thought of it. This is not something you will drift into. This is not something that's just going to happen to you while you sleep. This is an active process in the life of the believer. We need to have our minds engaged in this very battle every day, the battle to abhor what is evil. It's a battle that we must be engaged in 24 hours a day. We don't get to take time off because the reality is becoming a Christian doesn't automatically mean we're always going to hate sin and hold it in this level of contempt. Like we said before, the world is constantly exerting external pressure to, to press you into its mold. And that has an effect on us. And so we must fight against it. One of, one, one of the traps for the Christian today is we are surrounded by so much evil. We are surrounded by so much sin that we simply get used to it. Talk to anyone that works in a factory, one of the RV factories, one of the trailer factories, and then have someone use some like really vulgar language around them. And what they're going to say is, Oh, it's, I hear it every day. It's fine. I'm not offended. We, we, we get used to whatever we're bombarded with, whatever we're surrounded with. We, we get used to that. Martin Luther, in his little commentary on Romans, said, the truth is that 
we are, even as believers, inclined to what is evil. That's what it means to live in these bodies of flesh. We're inclined to it. We, so we're surrounded by it. We quickly get used to it. We quickly acclimate to it. It is surprisingly easy for the Christian to approve of evil. The professing Christian, at least. The one who, who has this testimony that says, I'm a believer, I trust in Christ. All it takes for most, for instance, is a beloved family member, a son or a daughter perhaps, to, to begin to identify as a member of the LGBT community and see how quickly they will soften and shift on their view of that sin. In, in, in those cases, many who identify as Christians will immediately change their views. We've seen it time and time again. Many who, who have been in the church for years and have claimed to be Christians for years, you find someone you love that says, this is who I am, and they will quickly go, well, it's not even a sin. I know I thought that yesterday, but it's different today. It happens all the time. We have this constant temptation to, to not offend. We, we don't want to be seen. Nobody wants to be seen as a bigot. Even bigots don't want to be called bigots. Nobody wants to be seen as backwards or out of date or behind the times or on the wrong side of history or whatever the category is that they're going to throw at you. And so what we do, if we don't make that full shift that many do where they just begin to approve of sin, we, we just begin to soft pedal clear statements of Scripture. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to say anything. We're going to just soften on it. Even on clear commands of Scripture, we'll soften. God says, do this or do not do this, and we'll just back off. We're not going to talk about those things. We'll, we'll even refuse to speak of God's judgment at all because we're afraid that will earn us the title of judgmental. We can't afford for that to happen to us. We don't hate and abhor evil. We manage it. That's how Christians slide into this so easily. We're so bombarded by all of these things that, that, that we lose our gag reflex for them. They don't disgust us anymore. And I'm not just talking about partic that particular sin. Evil is supposed to disgust us. Paul commands us here to turn from it in contempt and horror. And it's just so easy to not be that way. The, the typical youth group question, I used to get this all the time when I was coaching college sports. I, every trip, we'd, have some, we'd be on some long bus trip, and one of the freshmen would be like, Coach, i got a question for you about dating. And all the upperclassmen were like, don't do this. Don't do this. He's going to say things you don't like. would always have this happen. And they'd always be asking questions. The question was always this, the typical youth group question. How far can you take things? What's the line of physical, you know, contact? How, how, how far can, can things go? And of course, the answer is that's not a Christian question at all. It's not even how Christians think. It's not supposed to. That's us being pressed into the world's mold to even have categories like that that we think about. The question is this. Not how close can I get to evil? How far can I go? Because it, 
this is all sounding pretty good, and I like to inch at least as far over as I'm allowed to go. No, the question is, how can I most glorify God in this relationship? That's how Christians approach dating. How can I most glorify God in this relationship? And we do that with sin. We're always looking for what are the absolute yeses and the absolute noes, and how far can I get over this way? That's not the mind of one who abhors sin. I don't need to ask you, like, how close can I get to cutting my own finger off before I've really crossed a line morally? I don't want my finger to hurt at all. I shudder at the thought. We're supposed to hate evil so much that we would never even consider, like, how close can I get? No, how do I most glorify God in my life? Some of you in this room are embracing evil in your life right now. You don't abhor it. You embrace it. You hide it. You manage it. Oh, yeah, you've got moments. You've got moments where it grieves you. But you don't really abhor it. It's your secret world. You safeguard it. You, you plan for it. You nurture evil in your heart. You make excuses in your mind why you're the exception to the rule, why you're different. You need to know this, friend, you're not the exception, and you're not different. You must be vigilant in putting sin to death. Commit yourself to abhor evil. If you in your heart right now are feeling absolutely pointed at, then commit yourself to abhor evil. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You have to hate it. You have to, to, to be disgusted by it, to, to reject it and renounce it and turn from it. Flee from it. Why did Paul write these words to Christians? It's because this is the very real life and death struggle that every single one of us is in. Every single one of us is in a life and death struggle with sin that wants to kill us. It wants to murder us, and it is so easy for us to not be horrified by it. To, to, to throw open our doors and say, all right, murderer, come on in. And so Paul writes this to Christians. Charles Spurgeon said this of himself. And if this is true of Spurgeon, you better believe it's true about you. There are times when my imagination has taken me down to the sewers of earth. Sometimes when I feel the most devoted to God and the most earnest in prayer, it often happens at that very moment, the plague breaks out the very worst. This is the battle that we're all in. There's no time off from this battle. You can't afford to rest from this battle. I'm reading a biography. I'm listening to it. It's probably not fair to say I'm reading it of Stonewall Jackson, the great Civil War general. And uh, just leading up to the Civil War, there was this... Uh, these are the kind of things that aren't in my notes that make my sermons too long. Just before 
The battle is about to break off. He's teaching at Virginia Military Institute, and the students are getting riled up, and, and uh, none of the students have any respect for him. They think he's an idiot. He's, he's the worst teacher there at the school. They've heard stories of him in the Mexican War being a great warrior and hero, and they can't reconcile that with this man. And in the middle of this unrest, the president of the university addresses the students, these young soldiers, and, and they're not calming down, and he's, he, the students start clamoring for Jackson to speak, probably making fun of him. And to everyone's surprise, he actually gets up and addresses the crowd, and he basically says, soldiers don't need to say a lot of words. War is coming, and it's not far off, and my advice to you is when it comes, take your sword out and throw the scabbard away. And everybody was like, from that moment on, the legend of Stonewall Jackson was born, and, and, and he, was, he was seen in a different light by everyone. You don't care about this at all. But the, I, I'm struck with that statement. When the time for war comes, take the sword out and throw the scabbard away. We're not going to stop fighting. We're not going to stop fighting until the enemy's dead. This is the Christian life. We don't get to just put our sword away in the battle with sin, the battle to abhor evil, when the world is constantly pressing in on us and go, I think I'm just going to rest for a couple days. No, it wants to murder you. You can't put the sword away. This is the constant battle for Christians. There's no such thing as harmless sin. There's no such thing as giving up our vigilance. Romans 13, 14, when we get there, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This starts at the level of the mind. We, we must develop a horror, a disgust, a hatred for sin. We must. It's an active process. We must discover this Horror for sin. In the, in the early 1980s, young people discovered they could get high by spraying a certain household cleaner into a bag and then putting that bag over their mouth and breathing it in. And the, the, the chemical propellant that, that was used, which was the thing that was getting them high in that cleaner, was toxic from this aerosol spray. And many people became sick. A number of people even died, such that the company put a warning label on this cleaning product Serious death or serious injury will occur if you inhale this product. And the difference that it made was nothing. Just as many people were getting sick and dying from doing this as they were before the warning label came out. And so the, the executives are desperate, and the, the top executives of the com company, they meet with their attorneys, and they come up with a warning that they think is going to make a difference. We've got to find a way to stop this, or we're going to lose our company. And one attorney asked the crucial question in that meeting, and he said, what then do people fear more than death or injury? They don't fear death or injury enough to stop doing this. What do they fear more than that? The answer they came up with was they care more what they look like. They care more what they look like than they care about their health. And so the new warning label came out and it said, inhaling this product may cause facial disfigurement. Which is technically true because death does disfigure the face. And what happened was the abuse of the product almost stopped. 
It was so greatly minimized. Why? Because people weren't afraid of death. They weren't afraid of illness or injury. Not that much, not enough to stop, but what terrified them was having their face disfigured. What horrifies you about sin? What is it about sin that, that you find horrific? Is it the ugly consequences of sin? The painful loss, the shame, the exposure, death? Paul doesn't tell us here we should hate the consequences of sin. He says we should hate sin itself. Abhor what is evil. Of course we hate the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin are devastating and destructive. But the mind transformed by the Holy Spirit of God into the likeness of Christ hates sin itself, regardless of its consequences. And again, this is an active process. It begins at the level of the mind. It involves the will and it results in our actions. One early church leader said this, yes, we call out to God for deliverance from the tempestuous waves of temptation, but we also row away from the rocks. This is what we do. We, we call out to God for deliverance. It, it begins in the mind and in the will, and then we take active steps to flee from evil. That's the negative. Now, there's a positive as well. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. The Bible doesn't just tell us what not to do. It tells us what to do. Stay away from, hate evil, and hold fast to what is good. Stay close to it. Cling to it. Run from this. Run towards this. What is good? Hold fast to what is good. Well, it's everything that accords with the character of God. It's, it's all that Paul is going to be laying out for us going forward in Romans, and especially in this chapter. He's going to lay out for us, what are these things I should run to? What are these things I should cement myself to and, and, and cling to? When, when our mind is transformed by the Word of God, by His Spirit, we're able to do what verse 2 of this chapter has, has already told us to do. To not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we're transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, this begins to happen in us. We cling to what is good, and what is good is what is acceptable to God. That which is acceptable to God is pure. And Paul says, hold fast to this. These are the, this is what you hold fast to, what is good and pure and acceptable. This, this word hold fast, it's, it's to cling, it's to be joined to, literally to, 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 to glue or cement something together. It's the same word that gets used in, in Acts chapter 8 when Philip is supposed to go up to the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot. Verse 29 of Acts 8 says that he joined himself to the chariot. In other words, he got inside the chariot. That, that, that's what he did. So now, he and the chariot are traveling together. They're inseparable. Wherever the chariot's headed, that's where Philip is now headed. They're going in the same direction. It's the, it's the same Greek word that in the Old Testament, 
Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it gets used in Genesis chapter 2 when it describes what a man does when he marries his bride. He leaves his father and mother and he cleaves to his wife. The man becomes one with his wife such that she is now the priority relationship in all of his life. Everything else, everyone else, even his own mother and father takes second place to that marital union now because he's been joined to her. And he's, and he's holding fast to her, cleaving to her. The, the husband and the wife are now inseparably glued together, completely identified with one another. This is to be the nature, Paul tells us, of the believer's relationship with good, with that which is good, which that which accords with God's character. We are commanded to hold fast to it, to be cemented to it, to desire what is good above everyone and everything else. To hate anything that would try to pollute or pervert that. In other words, the, the believer whose mind is being transformed by the Holy Spirit of God will turn away from, Paul says, everything that is evil and be attached to what is good. We will abhor the one and we will love the other. Two brief points of application in as we consider these statements from Paul. First is this. These distinguishing marks of the true Christian that we've seen here are not options. They're not optional. I think I'll take this one, not this one. No, with, without genuine love, you cannot demonstrate the goodness of the gospel to the world. You, you cannot demonstrate the truth and the power of the gospel to the world. You cannot demonstrate godliness to the world. And without godly living, without hating evil and holding fast to good, your life testifies that your profession of faith is hypocrisy. It's not genuine. It's fake. It's acting. Th these marks of faith are not optional. They are essential. This is for all Christians. Genuine love. Horror and hatred for evil. Holding fast to what is good. Secondly, the call to godly living is not partial. It's comprehensive. This call that God gives to us, this, the original language implies or emphasizes its comprehensiveness. Abhor. Turn away from it. Hate it. Turn in horror. Everything that's evil, all of it. This is your attitude towards all evil, Christian. You abhor it from the very pit of your soul with every fiber of your being and hold fast, join all of yourself, cement yourself to everything good. All of you hates all that is evil, all of you joined to all that is good. That's the call. It's completely comprehensive. Christian discipleship involves and requires everything you are. It involves and it requires everything that you have. It involves and requires everything that you do. Isaac Watts in that great hymn of the church says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. That's what Paul's telling us here. That's Christian discipleship. Oh, salvation is a free gift of God's grace 
through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sinless life, substitutionary death, glorious resurrection, continual eternal intercession on, on our behalf. It's a, it's a gift of his grace by, by trusting and believing, but the call to discipleship requires everything from us. Nothing held back. Our, our call is to love comprehensively with nothing held back, to, to abhor evil, not just most of it, but all of it. Not, not leaving even the smallest hint of it to corrupt us. Not leaving even the, the smallest window open so that this murderer can sneak in and kill. To, to hold fast to what is good, to, to join ourselves to it, to cement ourselves to it, renewing our commitment to it every day. This is our call, church. This is our call, Christians. Unhypocritical love, hatred of evil, holding fast to what is good. These are non-negotiable marks of genuine saving faith. And although they are the work of and the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life, they must be cultivated. We must strive to do these things. We are not going to slide into them. But, but as we do them, our very lives will bear witness to the power of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. What a glorious, glorious thing that is for a watching world to see the truth and the power and the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we rejoice in you and in your great salvation. Lord, apart from your grace, it wouldn't matter how hard we tried to love unhypocritically. It wouldn't matter how hard we tried to, to cling to what is good and to turn from what is evil and to renounce it. We would not be able and it would accomplish us nothing. Lord, we rest in and rejoice in the finished work of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your great salvation, for your spirit empowering us to live lives that actually glorify and please you. And we pray, Lord, for increasing measure in our life of your spirit's power and activity that we would Lord, grow in our faithfulness, grow in our love for you and for your people. Grow even in our love for this lost and dying world, for those who, who are perishing apart from the hope that this gospel gives. Pray, God, that you would cause us to be increasingly faithful for your kingdom's sake, for the good and the joy of your people for all time. In Jesus' name, amen.